Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business-growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also has strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and an education partner with the Shopify-approved course, 1,000 Sales and Beyond. He's the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and interview the experts to help you in your journey to success. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. If it's the first time you're listening to this, my name's Nick. I'm the CEO here at Just Ask Parker and the host of this podcast. I've taken over recently from Caroline, and I always like to give a quick update on Caroline at the beginning of each podcast, as you probably know if you've been listening to previous episodes. Caroline and Baby are both doing really well. She keeps trying to get in contact with me, and I keep telling her to go away and enjoy the maternity leave. And thank you so much for all the messages we're getting as well. There's been a lot of bits and pieces I've passed on to her, people sending their regards and that sort of thing. So just wanted to say both of them are doing well. However, today... I've got a very, very special guest that I'm incredibly excited to be interviewing on this podcast for the benefit of all of you guys. His name's Derek. He's the CEO at Bright Pearl. When Derek joined Bright Pearl three years ago, he took on the biggest risk any CEO can take, a turnaround. Since taking the helm as CEO, Derek has led the retail operations platform from stagnant growth to more than $15 million in revenue, nearly 1,400 customers worldwide, and managing more than $3 billion in orders. Growth is currently over 100% new business year on year, and Bright Pearl has just been shortlisted for SaaS Solution of the Year at a major US award body. Shortlisted for CEO of the Year at the Digital Masters Award in 2018, the father of two is now recognized as a global retail expert. Derek, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Nick, thank you very much for having me on today. It's a pleasure. Brilliant. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, and we were just saying, for anybody else's benefit who's based in the UK, what beautiful weather we're having here. As you've probably noticed from some of the previous episodes, we're always talking about the weather. But uh, Derek, are you planning a beer this afternoon? Have you got some nice plans for a Friday? Or have, you know, is it going to be something stuck in the office? I am indeed. I'm, I'm planning a socially distanced barbecue this evening with a couple of mates locally. So looking forward to that. Oh, fantastic. My, my neighbours were having one yesterday today and you know when you get the smell coming across the fence yeah and you're trying to eat your sort of healthy fish and rice and stuff like that and there's this <laughs> smell of beef coming over the fence which is just irresistible so. <laughs> we're going for fish tonight oh brilliant glad to hear it glad to hear it anyway let's dive in i've got so many questions i want to ask there's so much i want to get from you today and i think there's a lot of things as well that have been submitted by some of the network and the group so firstly before we dive in tell us a bit about bright pearl what does it do what's erp how does it all fit together way to think about Bright Pearl is it's a system that handles all of the complexities that arise after a customer presses the buy button on the website or the buy button in store. And those complexities arise, as your listeners know, when they're dealing with multiple channels being used to fulfill orders, multiple countries, multiple currencies. And essentially, we are the operating platform that orchestrates and manages and provides visibility to the merchant on how their business is doing on a real-time basis. And that's essentially what we do. 
And for those of your listeners who have been around for as long as I have, this technology used to be supported by what was known as EORP, Enterprise Resource Planning Systems. This is that sort of pre-cloud definition. Yep. But now it's called Digital Operating Platform. And interestingly, Forrester, one of the analyst groups have come up with, they've created a category called Digital Operating Platforms, which are customer-centric cloud systems that allow merchants to put the customer at the core of all of the workflows that are needed to enable those amazing customer experiences that everyone wants to operate in order to uh, thrive and beat the likes of Walmart or, or Amazon. So that's essentially what we do. Sure thing. And just for the benefit of some of the guys who are not used to ERP then, is an ERP system, and obviously I know, I'm going to ask as a sort of devil's advocate question here, does an ERP system, does that send abandoned basket emails? Does it manage your warehouse? What are some of the things on the ground that as a consumer you've probably seen that an ERP is probably doing in the background? What the ERP would be doing is when you place an order, the ERP system will handle the payment. So you'll obviously have an experience there. So there'll be a payment gateway component to it. But perhaps when your order is actually accepted, payment goes through and you get that email with the tracker that says, you know, we got your order, here's the reference, go onto this link to find out where you're at. That would be done by the operating platform in the background. That would be an example. And also from a merchant perspective, you might get a message to say, hey, this product isn't in this door that you're shopping through, but we have it in our warehouse up in Canada. We will direct that product to you and it'll be a day you know, it won't be immediate delivery. It'll be two days delivery. That type of orchestration is being done by the operating platform in the background. There'll be two examples come to mind. Sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it's always my first question. You know, you're just sort of looking on the iPad late at night thinking, I need a new T-shirt, a wallet or something, order something online. And the next morning you sort of wake up and, you know, it's sort of the morning after slightly with the, in terms of the actual order process. When's it going to arrive? Has it been dispatched yet? You know, do I need to make sure I'm home on a certain day? All this sort of stuff is, uh, and the ERP will be doing all of that, I assume. Well, old ERPs would struggle with that because of the nature of how they were built, basically with the previous generation of the technology stack. But new ERPs are now being called digital operating platforms because they, they give customers that visibility and that real-time personalized service that everyone has been trained to expect by the likes of buying over things like Amazon. So... Merchants need to replicate that real-time personalized service, and they can only do so by using automation to manage the complexities that arise, especially if you're a direct-to-consumer brand serving multiple countries, and you're trying to manage the nuances of where's the product on a given time, and someone orders it on a Shopify channel the same second someone walks into a store and a rep in the store sells the same product, you've got to ensure that you're not overselling in one of those channels. That's essentially what an operating platform does. It, it allows that coordination to, to happen. And obviously, uh, the benefit to a merchant is making sure you're not wasting money having stock unnecessarily so in a particular warehouse because you have a much more accurate view of what people are ordering and what you need to order on the other end from your suppliers, because that's the other side of it, things like demand forecasting. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, it's, it's becoming more important as time goes on. I mean, in the last episode of this podcast, we interviewed Dan from Unbound Merino, who are a Shopify store. They're selling all over the world. And the one thing he kept talking about, and we had such a long, deep conversation about this, both before, during and after recording the podcast, 
was all about customer service. You know, I asked him the question of how do you get customers back? Why are your repeat customers so loyal? And he said, actually, he's got a customer that's ordered 22 times in a single year. And they did a bit of research on this customer. It's just a consumer. You know, it's not a business. It's not an office buying for their employees. It was just a consumer wanting to buy products, you know, two, sometimes even three times in a single month. And I asked him, you know, how do you do that? And he said, well, look, I could say email and all the rest of it. But actually, he says about customer service. When you buy a product, you know where the product is, you know when it's arriving, the journey's smooth, there's never any risk. If you've got any questions, customer service are available. And as you say, an ERP system is what you need to offer that sort of end-to-end solution without, you know, if you were to build each of those processes manually, which some companies do do, what a faff. I mean, it's going to be an absolute nightmare, isn't it? Oh, it will be an, an absolute nightmare. And then circling back to the example that you've given, I talk to a lot of merchants and they come to us and they say, okay, Derek, I want your technology to, to do X, Y, Z. And I say, well, hang on a minute. Let's just stop. Before we talk about the tech, tell me about the customer experience you're planning to deliver on each channel that you're going to operate in. And that usually surprisingly results in a, well, I, I want to offer X, Y, Z. And I say, well, have you got that documented? Have you got each stage of a customer's experience on the website storyboarded out before you even talk to anyone on the technology side. And I'm amazed how many people who come to us and say, well, no, we haven't done that. I, as the CEO, know how to do that, but I haven't sat down with my team in an offsite for two days and mapped that out, just storyboard old school and talked about where we are today and what we want to aspire to. And it's amazing that a lot of merchants, and this is changing rapidly, obviously, because of COVID-19, but my advice to any merchants that want to get beyond, you know, a thousand orders every hour is you've got to make sure that you're on it when it comes to a massive degree of high quality personalized service that is equal in all channels. Know what that is and then go to your technology partner, obviously Shopify. And we obviously work a lot with Shopify on the back office aspect of making sure that all of that comes to life. And it is a reality because if you go down the route of stitching it together through spreadsheets and different systems. The, the, the problem is, as you know, you lose sight of the full supply chain of effort that you need to service to get that product to the customer on time in a quality manner, which exceeds their expectations. And it is amazing, though, the first stage of it is just get out a storyboard and have fun with your team. And a lot of people don't do that. It's a really good point you make there, actually. And I think that what was running through my head there is that, and we get this a lot, a lot of brands are quite reactionary. So they react to, you know, the CEO. I mean, it's a classic example. The CEO goes on John Lewis or Amazon, orders a product, gets in the office the next day, calls a war room scenario meeting. Guys, we have to offer this sort of tracking on our delivery. And hopefully there's someone in the team that will point out we've got bigger issues than that. This is part of it, but now you're on the right page. Let's talk to Bright Pearl or let's talk to an ERP system and get the end-to-end solution. And as you say, let's let's spend a few days just storyboarding it. How does what's the what's the customer process right now? And I have been more and more staggered when I've spoken to Shopify merchants, especially, who have an entire team of 30, 40, 50 people working in the e-commerce department. None of them have placed an order on their own website. And seeing the emails that come out, see the design of those emails, the missed opportunities. You know, when you reach the carts, for example, one store I was talking to recently, one of our Parker clients, we, we have a task on Parker where you can order a sort of 30 or 60 minute conversation with a consultant. And I was doing one of these conversations, a really exciting store. And I thought, oh, I'm going to take this one. I really want to chat to these people. And one thing that struck me is on their uh, Shopify store, when you put a product into cart, your only option now is to go to checkout, which means you can only buy a single product. 
they sell iPhone cases. So they assumed that if you want to buy an iPhone case, you only want one. And I said, well, it's a, it's a very dangerous assumption to make. And are you planning to add more products? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're adding charging cables now as well. Well, surely I want a case and a cable that match. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. We're, we're going to offer that as a bundle. I'm like, but give me the choice to choose. I can't choose if I'm forced into checkout and I can't actually add multiple items to my basket. You know, the call to action on the product page was go to checkout. It wasn't add to basket, check basket. And there's all these opportunities then for cross-selling. And if they can increase, you know, order values, et cetera. And again, all of this, the ERP system needs to flow from that because if there's certain bundles that should work, then the ERP system should know that bundle has a 10% discount of both products, know what to do with stock levels when the product's ordered, because it'll also need to lower the stock on the two individual items as well as the bundle. And so I think, yeah, again, just to make the point, I think businesses need to work out when it's time to be reactionary and when it is just a quick, wow, we found a golden nugget, let's do this. And actually where they need to be proactive and say, right, in five years, we want this order process. So let's build it today. And then it just already exists. But when a merchant finds themselves in a position where, and, and in particular with the high energy, passionate CEO, the ones that get to the scale position and, and start going, you know, motoring to above 5 million, beyond 25 million of GMV, are the companies that have actually, and this is the other side of the equation, they have taken the time to bring on the necessary skills, people skills on the operation side of things to bring to life the vision of the CEO. And, and that's just a classic requirement. But when that happens, then the CEO can take the time, pretty much like in the old days, before the internet existed, if you were um, running a department store or a supermarket, the manager of that store on a daily basis walked the aisles, they walked down the aisles, they picked up the product. And when you look at that and you say, okay, who's walking the aisles now in the digital world? Uh, that's something that every merchant needs to be asking themselves on a weekly basis, because this is not just tech only. You need the operating platform in the background, to your point, but a huge part of it is the people side of things. And the last point I would make as well is retail as a sector is very poor at systemized training. It doesn't put enough time into training its staff on how to use the systems they have and how to learn from customers. And then when you couple that with industry-wide attrition, which is huge, in retail, it's over 60% in the US. Now, that's slightly skewed by the growth of warehouses, the number of people in warehouses. There's a high attrition rate in warehouses, and that's mainly manual work, non-skilled. But when you take away warehouses, it's 28%. That's huge. That's hugely expensive. So that's another thing that I would recommend your, your merchants to really look at is the training to ensure you retain your staff, just like you want to retain your customers and optimize that lifetime value. Absolutely. I think it's a very valuable point. I mean, at my main consultancy here at Spec in London, I am delighted to say only one staff member has left in the last three or four years. And that's because one of our interview questions is, where do you want to be in five years? And it's a very, you know, sort of bold, normal, standard question you'd expect to get. And everyone says, oh, I really want to further my career, support a business. And then we ask the next question, which is, and do you, do you plan to be here in five years? Because if not, let's terminate this now sort of thing. Like we, we only want to build staff because we, we're going to, you know, we've got some incredibly good processes. We've got some good clients. I don't want to put someone in front of the client that could be gone in six months. You know, it's the Jose Mourinho, the uh, famous uh, football manager, he said, you know, one bad egg ruins an omelette. So if you want a good omelette, you need good eggs. Well-known saying, and I think it's absolutely true. Well, I definitely haven't achieved that level. I, I think we're at 15% attrition internally, which we're working on. But it's sort of a healthy thing as well. It's 10% of performance, 10% of the staff. You need to ensure that you are always working toward excellence on the employee base. But yeah, it's a bit of a mix. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, every business is only as good as its staff, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's not always just the best people. It's actually the right people as well, I find, is, is key. There's so many friends of mine who've started marketing agencies, consultancies like mine. Of course, they initially sort of say, well, look, you've got a business of 10 people or whatever. You know, it's a small company, but you seem to be doing all right for yourself. And then when they start... They then have this realization of like, wow, first employee, who do I hire? Do I get someone super experienced? Do I employ a salesperson? Do I get someone super junior to just support me? What do I do? And I, you know, it's always a kind of case by case basis, but it's just a question I get so often. It's the same with Shopify stores. It's a sort of, do we employ someone to manage products? Do most people, I think, aim for marketing? You know, a lot of logistics and warehouses, a lot of that can be automated now or outsourced. And so it's often turning to marketing. But then again, getting the right marketing person, you know, if you find that kind of absolute guru person that can sit in the corner tweaking SEO and PPC campaigns and Facebook all day and getting millions of dollars of revenue coming in, then then you're winning. You know, you're doing incredibly well, but those people are so hard to find. And as soon as they realize they're good, they do what I did and go and start their own thing because why wouldn't you? And so it's, yeah, I think being realistic about who to... Who to hire as well is a, is a massive part of running any business. And the timing of it, because there are trigger points that occur when you get that person in and they start driving the front, you know, the traffic and you convert and you're starting to watch your sales go up and creep up to a thousand a day, 10,000 a day, 30,000 a day. It's knowing with your team, what are the trigger points to ensure that you can scale with that growth? Because that's what we see is a lot of really exciting products, particularly now with the emergence of direct consumer brands, which is really motoring along, they run into issues very, very quickly. And and there's some leading indicators there. Number one is actually the reviews, reviews being given by customers and being maniacal about tracking those reviews in a genuine way, and then really undertaking an exercise internally to understand what's the root cause of that review and reaching back out to those customers and learning what's broken in the back office because we did a survey a year ago around, you know, what was the cause of reviews? And when you tracked it back, we analyzed over 75,000 reviews across 4,000 consumers. And we found that 76% of negative reviews, when you tracked it back, the root cause was an issue with the wrong product was put in the box. There was a mismanaged expectation on refund policy. Very rarely was the negative review around the product. It was about the experience about getting the product to the customer post the buy button being clicked, which was really interesting. And that's just something your listeners should consider when they ask the question, how are we going to get beyond 5 million? Definitely. And I think one of the big learnings I I found from a Shopify meetup I went to about five or six years ago when Shopify was sort of really hitting the UK market, one of the merchants talking on this on this panel had said, The biggest learning exercise we ever did is I, as the director, the owner of the business, I started delivering products when they were within 50 miles of our warehouse. And he would go and hand deliver them to people at their door and say, and by the way, I'm the owner of the business. You're quite local to where we were. Can I just ask you, how did you find our website? I know it's awful, but tell me what you would like to change about it. You know, I appreciate you did still order, but what was wrong? And he said that was their entire basis for their UX design as you said earlier about doing an away day or a couple of days away to work out that journey, he did that on a piece of paper and took it to several different web agencies and said, I'll pay anything, make this happen. And he found the right one. They wanted to build it on Shopify. And there we go. You know, he was off. Wow. That's such a long time ago, five years ago. In the Shopify world, it really is. In the Shopify (laughs) world. Yeah. It's like, 
Someone joked recently, it's like our world is like the the dog year. One one year working at Bright Pearl feels like seven dog years because it's just <laughs> so busy and intense. I like that. Cool. Anyway, let's let's take a slight sidestep here because I want to ask you some questions specific about your involvement and your career. So we've spoken obviously about retail, about the kind of how the industry's doing and some hopefully some good tips for everybody there. But what was it about about Bright Pearl that got you involved in the first place? Well, the first thing was the product itself and the fact that the founder of Bright Pearl, a guy called Chris Tanner, who's quite the genius, but he was actually a merchant selling skateboards and surf equipment out of his shop. This is 11 years ago in Bristol. So 77 dog years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, eons ago. And he started doing really well. He was using a bunch of tech and he was a quite a, quite a great technologist himself. Anyway, long story short, he decided, well, I'll build a platform to manage the complexities that arise with this growth. And he set about building out what was then a business management software suite, which covered all jobs of work that you would need to do. But obviously, the world moves on very quickly. So that was back then. He raised money. The company grew hugely. And then that growth stagnated for a number of reasons, which were mainly internal and just some mistakes the company made around the key area of product market fit and making sure that was right. And Chris and myself met, and I had done startups in the 90s. I'd done four startups, the last of which was bought by a large company called Symantec in the security space. And I got chatting to him, and all I was looking for was a vehicle in a market that was going to undergo major disruption, which was obviously the big move of buying product online. And at a product level, these guys had built a trading platform that not only looked after the sell and the buy side, but I had a full accounting module, real-time accounting module as well. So you could see what is the true fully landed cost of each transaction in real time as I trade. And I went, wow, that is really, really valuable. If I can come in with my background and skills and help the team point the solution at the right side of the market to make sure that they map what the jobs of work they do to the most value perceived by merchants. And that's essentially what we did over the last three years was invest in people, to your point earlier, invest in training. And we got the company pointed in the right way. So we moved away from micro retailers. These are companies that are, you know, just looking for something that's $30, $40 a month. We moved away from that into established companies trading no less than a million dollars up to $250 million. And that has been a four-year journey, actually. You said I joined three years ago. It's actually four years ago. So that's 28 dog years, so to speak, a little bit more. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's what attracted me. And at that time, the company was mainly serving the UK market. 10% of its business was in the US. And now it's completely the other way around. 60% of our business is in the US and our headquarters is in Austin, Texas. And 40% is here and we're going great gangbusters. But it's a real testament to the team and, and also the customers that were growing anyway, who've come along with us on that journey. But we don't serve micro retailers anymore. And we don't serve Shopify. We only really serve Shopify plus customers. Sure. And I think my next question is going to be one that I've tackled a lot in our business. We've got a couple of advisors that joined our board a while ago. And I said, look, we've got such a big range of clients. We offer SEO, PPC. We're good at the consultancy, but how do we grow? You know, like, I, I, need to, I need to get some proper advice and some external thoughts, people that have done it before. And one of the things that came out of it quite quickly, the initial meeting uh, note that was actually written down was, fire all the bad clients. Now, that's not what we did. And it wasn't in terms of like good, good, good client versus bad client is one that we're getting on with and one we're not. It's not necessarily a good or bad business. But what was it like when you guys made that decision and said, right, we're going to turn our backs on micro retailers? Because 
it's scary in a sense, isn't it? Because you're losing revenue. You're saying goodbye to the one thing that you spend 99% of the business's operating time trying to achieve, which is growth. How did you manage that process? Like, what did that look like? What were some of the dangers you, you know, you, you sort of saw? How did you manage them? Well, first off, we didn't turn our back on them. We just agreed a three-year strategy to move the revenue dependency away from them by replacing them with new customers. Okay. So that, that's a nuance, but quite important. But first off, like when I, when I joined, I spent 90 days talking to customers, partners, and employees. And I had a set of questions really aimed around how decisions were made, where they were spending their time, and for customers, what value, what was the value they perceived within what we offered to them. And then I also engaged a third-party consultancy firm called the Alexander Group. This is back then. And I asked them to go validate that learning with uh, blind tasting. So going to customers that I'd like to sell to, but I wasn't, and asking them the same questions. And I did that because I wanted to understand, can this product actually be sold to bigger customers? Because you don't want to just say you're going to do it. You need to prove that you can if you're going to convince your investors that it's the worthwhile journey to do. Sure. So that was the approach that we took. And once we validated that, the next question then was, okay, who are we going to compete with? And what are the three things we're going to do better than them? And we chose a company called NetSuite to compete with. And we broke it down and said, wow, you know, they've just been bought by Oracle for $8 billion. We're a small little company. I remember that, yeah. yeah and, and everyone would say, well, how are you going to beat them, Derek? And the trick here is that when you're competing with a large company with more resources than you, there's usually low-hanging fruit around the area of non-functional differentiation as opposed to product differentiation. Product differentiation takes a while to build, and you have to invest, and we chose to go after automation on that. But non-functional was designed around those interviews we did with customers and said, what is it you don't like about NetSuite? And they said, well, I don't like the fact that they acquire low and rate retain high. So they secure me on a low price, and then they really hit me once I'm involved. So we said, okay, we're going to have a pricing model at BrightPro, which is transparent. It's a utility-based pricing model. You grow, we grow. But as you grow, you get a much cheaper service on a cost-per-unit basis. The second area was NetSuite used partners to do deployment. And the merchants we spoke to said they really didn't like that because after the, mer- the partners had written scripts to make it work, Next year, there'd be a bill for that script, so a hidden bill through the cost of customization. So we said, we're going to be 100% configurable, but we're going to do the deployment ourselves on a fixed price basis, which obviously meant we had to hire a load of consultants, and that was a very different financial model. But that's just an example of when you want to go big, really spend the time to understand the weakness of the big player, because they can't move as fast as you can. And in today's world, be very careful about going down the product route because everyone can copy what you've built on a product very quickly. Non-functional with a high quality performance team is actually how you win. Sure. And it's really interesting, actually, you mentioned uh, NetSuite because I was heavily involved in Vendor back in the day, which most people listening to this probably haven't heard of Vendor, V-E-N-D-A, really clunky old e-commerce platform. And actually not a million miles away from Shopify in terms of what it tried to achieve. You know, it was hosted by them. Every, all the sort of server side and platform updates were done by them. The idea was you could just choose a, choose a showcase template, modify the CSS, and you're away. Make it look the way you want it to, but everything else is done for you, and you can plug other stuff in. And they were bought by NetSuite. So then we started playing with NetSuite Cloud, which was really exciting because suddenly the numbers went up, the budgets went up, and it was really good for us. And then, of course, when Oracle came along and bought NetSuite, I was like, ah, that's why NetSuite bought Vendor. Because until then, it was slightly kind of, why are these guys doing this? Like, Vendor's so far from, from NetSuite. They must just want the customer base. But then even the customer base, they didn't seem to care about. So 
we were involved in like migrating TK Maxx from um, Vendor to, to Hybris and, and quite a few other moves like that on the Vendor platform. You know, we helped launch Kate Spade New York on, on Vendor about six months or a year before Vendor announced it was going to, it was going to um, put a, you know, put a sort of two year stop on support and stuff like this. And so, yeah, really interesting time. But I think just using that as a comparison, again, for a lot of our listeners who are on Shopify, Shopify is, is just a good execution, in my opinion, of what lots of other platforms trying to do to make e-commerce simplified. Yes, there are things locked down. Yes, Magento and Shopware, you can customize and do a lot more too. But actually, Shopify does give you that security. And the fact that you can click a button and go from simple plan to plus, you know, slightly more than a button, but you don't have to rebuild your site. You don't have to change your templates. Customers stay there. I mean, Magento 1 to Magento 2, dare I say. Yeah. <laughs> nightmare, nightmare. I mean, the Shopify team have done an amazing job, obviously. And the tenant of really understanding what adds value to their customers, and they're all maniacally focused on that at Shopify, has just resulted in a great product. But to your point, they are configurable, not customizable. They are obviously are customizable through APIs, but it's that focus on configurability it just allows merchants to get on with it. You know, plug in Shopify really quickly, get to a certain size, plug in Brightpearl to handle the complexity on the back end. And we love the guys at Shopify. They are our fastest growing partner platform on the Shopify Plus. And we actually just signed them up as a customer to Brightpearl themselves, or we will run their Shopify hardware store, you know, for selling all of the, all of the kit there. So we love Shopify, the Plus team, love it. Brilliant. And obviously, that's good to hear now that we're 30 minutes into a podcast. But no, I, I know we obviously spoke beforehand, and we know you guys work on Shopify a lot, hence why you're here. But just on that note, I mean, we're talking earlier about micro retailers and you know, small e-commerce stores. Something we find certainly at Parker, just ask Parker, is that a lot of people are striving to make their first 1,000 sales, their first 5,000, their first 10,000, 100,000, etc. What's your advice for a small merchant who's sort of probably not a Bright Pearl customer today, but could be one day? How do they get there? Obviously, not just for the purpose of becoming one of your customers, obviously, for the purpose of growing their business, their baby, you know, in the whole world of entrepreneurship. But what's your advice in terms of like, you know, you've got a store, you've got a few orders coming in. What's your advice on how to grow it, how to really, really, really start to scale Mm. stuff up? Well, I think I think the first thing is validate the product market fit in one or two channels. Don't get caught into the let's sell in all channels from day one, because if you do that, you will then run into the complexity issues and then you're going to need something like bright pearl before you've got to the scale so that's the first thing and what do you mean by channel uh well multiple channels might be i open up a website i'm using shopify i'm going to decide now to sell on amazon i'm going to open up walmart i'm going to get an edi provider so i can open up distribution if you're going to do that just be aware that you have to have the product market fit proven first because once you do that, you're going to introduce complexity into your operations. And then you'll need something like Brightpro, which typically happens once you go beyond two or three channels. And I'm not even talking about physical, because obviously we support physical, like things like in-store pause. So you want to be able to make sure you're ahead on differentiation for things like buy online, pick up in store, or you know, now with COVID, you've got to be you know no-touch mechanisms for picking up product at a warehouse or um, at a go dark distribution center, what, whatever it's going to be. So that'd be the second area. And then uh, the third one is continually map out and evolve your storyboard for the, the customer journeys you want to enable. The fourth point, and this is more of a leading indicator, make sure at every stage that you understand the true fully landed cost of your products that you're selling. And if you can't, or you lose visibility of that, it's time to upgrade the back office to an operating platform. And then mostly listen to your MSM at Shopify. I mean, 
the, the Shopify team are excellent at identifying when you should move to Shopify Plus and when you should talk to someone like uh, BrightPro. Awesome. And thank you so much for that, because I think it's, it's, a, it's a burning question we get quite a lot. You know, I get quite a lot of emails off the back of these podcasts saying, you know, hi, Nick, Caroline, quick bit of advice if you've got five minutes. How do I get my store started? You know, we're getting 20, 30 orders a week. I'm working part-time elsewhere to pay the bills. What do I do? You know, and it's, it's there's sort of generic answers we can give, find that golden channel, et cetera. But sometimes, for example, one store we had the other day, they said they were spending three or $4,000 on uh, Google Shopping, didn't know how to improve it. And so part of my role coming into Parker, similar to yours, you know, it's not so much a turnaround, but it's very much a, I see huge potential for this business. And one of the things I'm looking at is the tasks we offer. And actually one we created last week, which isn't readily available yet. It might be by the time this podcast goes out, but um, one we're looking at is actually just a review of Google Shopping, which finishes with an, an hour's conversation with one of my team in London to talk through what's actually going on and what's not. Because I think one of the issues at the moment is a lot of people get sold on this dream of clicking a button, $29 a month, you're now an e-commerce store. And then when they actually start playing with like Facebook advertising, Google advertising, Google Shopping, trying to upload a product and going, how do I just move this thing to the left a bit? Not understanding how the liquid templates and Shopify it starts to become a reality that, do you know what, the skills we need to actually launch a store are far greater than we thought initially. You know, we need to know about web code. We need to know about marketing. I often use the phrase, and I'm, I'm, I'm planning a book. It might not be for 10 years, but I'm planning a book on this as well. Um, just called Marketing Has Been Lost from Digital Marketing. You know, people, they get so caught up in like the numbers on a Google campaign that they're running, a Google Ads campaign, that they forget like, do you know what, if we just came up with a good marketing tagline, a good offer, really worked out what our customers are really, you know, fussed about. You know, if, if we sell computer cables, they probably want next day delivery because you don't order a computer cable because you feel like it. It's not a luxury item. You order it because you've got a screen or something you need to plug into a computer. So actually next day delivery is really the driver of that, you know, fully tracked next day delivery is probably the USP. So what are your thoughts on that around the kind of, you know, marketing side of things versus just people trying to play the numbers, play the systems? Well, I, I think the reality of today's world is marketing is divided into two areas, channels that are run by algorithms, and you need to have the skills, whether it's agency or in-house, to understand how to optimize the algorithms that decide where, how much value you're going to get for each pound spent. And then the second thing is, in your earlier days, it's all about the product market fit and understanding the cohort of customer you're going to sell to. And you should be maniacally focused on that. and then. Get a good agency, you know, agencies, in particular Shopify agencies that we work with, they add a huge amount of value. And they normally are pretty good at spotting individuals that have the operator sort of nuance to them, uh, individuals that have started out and they go, this person has got, you know, the right balance between the passion, but also the realism to be successful. So I'm going to invest in, in time in them. So yeah, so agency product market fit, but then understand the algorithm channels. The last one I would say as well is be careful about where you spend your cash. So if you're starting out and you've got a Shopify store, you should really look at demand forecasting. There's some really cool apps on the Shopify store that essentially allow you to optimize what you order and when you order, because obviously cash is king when you're starting out. So the, the app store in environment on Shopify is amazing uh, and is a great warm up session, if you like, to Shopify Plus. 
when you need to come to someone like Bright Pearl to bring it all together. Definitely. And I, I would massively plug the app store on, on Shopify as well. I, I would always say, and we always mention this, certainly from an SEO perspective and page speed, just be a bit careful with the apps you use. A lot of apps have like a free seven-day trial. So what you can do is you can do like a page speed test on Google or GT Metrics or something. Um, do a page speed test, install the free seven-day trial of the app, give it a go and see if it affects page speed. Because all these apps have been approved by Shopify, but some of them do some things that are quite complicated. Correct. You're you are spot on there. And I'd say a characteristic of operators that I see that are highly effective uh, at using the Shopify tool set are very active on the forums in terms of research. And you know they're slightly bonkers. They spend two or three hours a day reading the forums and getting up to date and up to speed on what's good and what's bad. But also sharing. And that, that, I love that bit. They share answers to stuff. You've got a problem, there's always somebody who's answered it. Yeah, yeah. And we've got plenty of customers who definitely fill that. And I, I, I talk to our customers a lot and I find myself bamboozled by just the sheer amount of information that these guys have through the forums. And, and any merchants out there, you know, identify the top contributor on a forum, say, to do with that topic of demand forecasting and get to know them. Definitely. I think it's a, a great bit of advice. And I think one of the things I'm hearing sort of over and over from a lot of your answers that it's something we've probably not spoken about much on the podcast, actually. It, it, and I just want to reiterate the point, really, is that forecasting and looking forward is so important here. I mean, I've run lots of different businesses over the years. I'm, I'm a bit older than I look, is always the joke I make, or good face cream. But a lot of the businesses I've run, one of the biggest issues I've had with them is that I just haven't had a plan or and, you know, five, even five years ago, the plans I was making was like a spreadsheet of like January, February, March. And it was like, we need this much revenue, so this many product sales or clients, new service sales. They're going to stay for 50 years. And then this is the plan. And just, you know, none of it really based on any data. And I think, again, just something you've mentioned so many times, I think so important where Bright Pearl can help. And there's lots of other good tools to help you, as you say, in terms of forecasting how much stock to have and everything. It's just looking forward. You have to have a quantified plan. Yes, launch day for your Shopify store might be a testing process. It might be, we're going to put $50,000 into building a store, buying some products and chucking it out there and see what happens. But just know that's the plan. You know, and I think then you can get some data and start to strategically say, do you know what? These keywords on Google make us money. These ads we've got on Facebook make us money. I know you said earlier about not spreading yourself too thin, but I think for a test, I think thin's quite good. But as you, as you reach that point of scale, it's like, know what your channels do. So Facebook ads probably won't convert as well as Google. I, I did a podcast on that recently of just Facebook ads versus Google ads, making the point that Facebook's interruptive. I'm on there to talk to friends, organize stag do's, you know, find out the latest news in terms of like football banter or something like that. I'm not there looking for product. On Google, I am. You know, I went on Google the other day and searched up some things and ended up on Timberland's website and also Craghoppers, I think was the other one I bought from. You know, I was looking for specific products and I was in a buy ready mode because I triggered that. And so do millions of other people every day on Google. Whereas, you know, it doesn't mean Facebook can't work. It just means you have to be really realistic about that plan. And I just think, again, the, the whole concept of looking forward and having a game plan, we're going to learn this. Once we know that, we're then going to probably make, you know, go down one of these three roads at the next stage. And at that point, we'll know what we want our customer journey to look like. At that point, we'll know what our branding needs to do, what our most important selling points are, because we'll have some customers. And as you keep talking, we can ask our customers and they'll give us some feedback. I, th- I think the, the emergence of Facebook and Instagram as direct consumer channels is something we're, we're already seeing within our customer base. It is early days, but you know, I think in this new world of COVID-19, everyone's going to get to become much more expert about the conditions and the timing upon when a customer buys and 
the psychological profile that they're in when they buy, whether it's impulse or to your point when they're searching. And I think what we're going to see is channels really focusing on particular times in the day and particular psychological profile that a person is in and they'd be optimized for that to capture it. Because, you know, gone are the days where you have uh, cumulative causation, you know, that concept of, hey, I'm going to buy a pair of shoes. I'm going to go to a street in London where I know there's six shoe shops and I'm going to go to the mall and see what I see and then I'm going to buy one. You know, COVID-19, physical stores, that, that world no longer exists. So the world now is all about really breaking down, using data, but obviously breaking down what's the new pattern of cumulative causation in the online world and uh, how do I replicate that and how do I optimize that? But I am really interested. We've got a battle going on between Shopify and Amazon, as we all know, but I'm really interested to see what Facebook are going to be doing through Instagram in particular and how they're going to augment the concept of you know, common payment and just click through and it arrives the next day because obviously they want to get access to a fulfillment mechanism just like that. I think that's a battle that we're going to see over the next 12 months. So any merchants that are out there, particularly those who sell to smaller, sorry, younger, younger, not younger, but the age profile of 20 to 40, people are active on social, don't ignore it. I don't know if you've seen, I'm just opening my phone to quickly check this because I only spotted it a few days ago, but Instagram now has a shop button at the bottom of the app. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, but when that popped up, there was this part of me going, finally, I knew something was coming. Not, and not through any announcements, just through like one of those inklings of like, you know, all these, all these online social media platforms, they have big audiences and they have to monetize them. And there was me sort of sitting there thinking, look, Facebook's owned Instagram for a while now. You can tag products on, you know, on, on things and you can advertise. There must be something more coming. And now they've got this shop button, you know, which is essentially just discover but has links to products and from what i can see it looks free as well when we've not actually used it for any clients yet we've got a couple of um intro meetings with our facebook team over the next few weeks i'm quite excited to see what that what that looks like but as you say like you know gone are the days where you'll go to you know 20 30 shops look around at stuff i i personally only really use stores now for click and collect or if i'm going to go out shopping what I'll do is I'll go to Blue Water, Westfield, which for anybody in the US listening, they're just kind of out of town shopping centers, which I think are slightly more common in, in the US than they are in the UK. But in the UK, we're getting more of them now. It's just a dedicated one big roof full of different shops. You can park, you know, on site, the parking might only cost three pounds, four pounds for half a day. There's cafes, restaurants. You go there as a dedicated shopping trip, but you only do it once a month or something. And it's, for me, it's a great experience. It's like we do in the, in the digital world. You take the user experience or desired user experience. I want to park easily. I want to get to shops easily. I want a map of where the shops are. I want to know there's a lot in one place. But equally, all the local high street shops now, I really only use them for click and collect or to pick up a coffee. You know, I, I appreciate I'm in my own micro universe. We all are. But again, I'm just seeing more and more shops shut in terms of being replaced with cafes and stuff in the UK. And it's, it's been a really interesting trend, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think online, we'll see an emergence of relevance for Instagram and Facebook. We're, we are already seeing it. And that is an area to look at for competitive differentiation. And then it varies by, by product in terms of you know, the emergence of vertical marketplaces, uh, like say, Predaporte, the fashion sort of vertical where you can go and get high end fashion products, or matches fashion in the UK. But then when you go to non fashion goods, like, I don't know, tires for cars or electrical accessories, the emergence of these sort of super vertical stores are places you go and you just get everything, where everything is then drop shipped from the manufacturer on the back end using something like Bright Pro, that 
that that is a big big area of growth sure i think that makes a lot of sense like it's it's an exciting time i think you know a lot of the guests we've had on recently have been talking specifically about covid and almost making an opportunity obviously there's a lot of downsides you know i you know my regards to anybody who's experienced any death during this time or lost anybody they they care about but from a from a business point of view it's just one of those a bit like the financial crash it means everybody has to kind of stand up straight take a step back they're going to get hit a lot but it's how you then rise up after that you know what opportunities then start to come about and i think certainly a lot of our listeners to this podcast you're in the shopify world you know or you're interested in it or you're looking at it you know, to, to move into, it's a growing space at the moment. It's certainly going places. It is. I'd say also as well that your listeners who are coming from the traditional world, they have established businesses that have been really impacted by COVID and they're looking very seriously at Shopify and Shopify Plus. I think the the digital native brands, those who have been 100% online, they've had a much better degree of being able to be flexible and respond to COVID-19 in a in an innovative way, probably to the benefit of their businesses. And those merchants who've had a foot in the traditional world have really been moving very, very quickly. And we've seen a huge amount of strive toward innovation by adopting things like Shopify Plus. And I suppose when you go and you look at a technology stack that you're going to use to grow the business, the key thing is how flexible is it? So how flexible is the tech stack to respond to issues like COVID-19? in particular when it pertains to, am I locked into this payments gateway? Am I locked into this e-commerce platform? You want to make sure that, especially if you're beyond two and a half, five million in revenue, that you can be super flexible and you can have Amazon channels, Walmart channels, Shopify channels, Magento channels, if, if, if you even wanted to explore that. Flexibility is key. And we're actually launching a, a health checker uh, that you can pick up at brightpro.com forward slash health checker. And it's got a bunch of questions where you can essentially just get a, a posture picture of how flexible is our tech stack to be able to handle, you know, a second, a third, a fourth, God forbid, outbreak of COVID. But personally, I don't think COVID's going to go away. I just think it's going to be a COVID jab, just like we get a yeah. flu jab every year. And it's the new it reality. It exists, but it'll be managed. Yeah. I think that's very much my yeah. prediction as well. But I'm not a scientist, so no. we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we, 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 we shall see. We shall see. But all of my you know, Shopify customers like Bond Touch or Armed Forces or Love Pop, who are really innovative companies, flexibility is key to them. And that's why Shopify is such a great platform, uh, especially with Brightpro. Well, look, Derek, I want to say a massive thank you for coming on today. I really, really appreciate your time. There's so many golden nuggets and stuff in there. And I won't say anything yet, but there is a very high chance we're going to have Derek back in the next few months um, with something very exciting. So please watch that space. Again, Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Take care of yourself, Nick, and stay safe. I will do. And for everybody else listening, if you want to support the show, then please go and check out our Facebook group, Winning with Shopify. We've got thousands of members in there now. If you've got any questions about your store, please feel free to use it as a forum. Me and my team in London and all the guys at Parker, um, we are on that uh, quite a lot. So we can help with little nuggets of knowledge. We also post the latest podcast and that sort of stuff up there. Please feel free to go and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, etc. if you haven't already. Um, and the last thing to announce that I'm super excited about is that in September, we are likely to be running a series of podcasts, specifically on SEO. So we're going to have four podcasts back to back with four of the leading SEO experts in the UK and the US, handpicked by myself as somebody in the SEO industry. Please do tune in in September. But until then, stay safe. I hope everything's going well in your business at the moment. And we look forward to having you again on the podcast in the next week or so. Thanks again. 
Sign up for free for the Shopify-approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.